taken from the fourth chapter of the book of James, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. That's James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, yourselves therefore 
therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of life and all that comes with it. And we thank you especially for the newness of life that you have given us in Christ. As we come to you this morning, Father, we come as your children. Again, we are weary, we are worn. There are so many things that are going on outside of us and things that are raging within. So we thank you for this sacred space where we come into your presence and we are reminded of your great love and grace towards us. We come to you individually, one by one, even as you have called us into your presence. But we also come as a body. And so as we come this morning, Father, we lift the needs of this local assembly before you. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are directly affected by the current virus. We lift before you those who are infirm, those who are cut off from their ordinary sources of encouragement and and even some of the most basic things that they need. We lift before you those who are bereaved. We know that many are going through the valley of the shadow of death, and so we pray continuously for the Gibbs family, and we lift before you the Rogers family and the Lawrence family. We pray for the Connors family and their recent loss. We lift our brother Mizell, Curtis Mizell, in the loss of his mother in this season for him, and we pray for the Wright family. Others, Father, who have lost loved ones or who are dealing directly or indirectly with death, we pray your continued mercies upon them, that your grace would be ministered to them through the body that you have connected them to. We lift not only the needs of this local assembly, and you know our needs, we thank you that things are as well as they are, but we pray that you would continue to build us up. And we also lift before you other members and other parts of the body, those that are in other portions of the vineyard. We pray for churches at home and abroad where the gospel is clearly and properly preached that you would continue to refresh the spirits of your people and remind us of the sufficiency of your grace even for times such as these. We lift before you all of those who have rightful rule and authority over us and we pray that we would submit as we would submit unto you. But we pray that you would strengthen us in your word and your grace, that we would follow you first and foremost, so that we would know error when we see it, and we would know falseness when we hear it, and we would know unrighteousness when it when when we are approached by it. Strengthen us always for your glory and for your service. We thank you for those who are gathered with us this morning, and we pray that you would, whatever our individual needs are, continue to strengthen us to strengthen one another for your glory. Father, we come to you this morning as we do always, recognizing that we have sinned. We know that we are not what we are supposed to be. Our words have not always been seasoned with grace. We've not loved you with our whole heart, and we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have failed to see our fellow image bearers in the way that we should. We've not always been just in our thinking we have found some ways to make room for what is right or what is wrong and we have jettisoned that which is good and so we pray that as we are in your presence this morning that you would strengthen us by your spirit and we would see our sins for what they are and that you would give us a heart to to not only see them but own them and then as we see them Father give us a heart of grace Give give us a heart of repentance that we would consciously turn from that which is displeasing to you and that we would consciously turn towards that which is according to your word and your will. Give us a glimpse of our Savior. 
so that we would know our sins, the greatest to the smallest, have been purged by His blood. And that right now, as we are in this assembly, in this place, even as we are on planet Earth, we are seated with Him in heavenly places. Give us a better glimpse of this world through the lens of our resurrected Savior so that it would be our intention consciously to walk in this world as children who have been caught out of darkness into your marvelous light and to walk as those who are hidden in Christ so that our affections, our appetites and our even, even our words would be filtered through our union with Him and it would be our goal and our intention to live to your glory thank you Father for this sacred season thank you for this time that you have brought us together and, and as we gather prepare us for your word that's been prepared for us so that when we leave this place we would be able to walk among men and women and show them that we have not only been in the presence of but we are the very possession of a crucified Savior and therefore it would be our aim to glorify you in thought, word, and deed in all that we do. Thank you, Father, for this season. Refresh us now by your grace. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
taken from the fourth chapter of the book of James and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. That's James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover us and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now last week we looked at uh, the distinction that James makes between the wisdom that comes from above, which emanates from outside of ourselves and from the triune God, and the wisdom that is earthly, which actually emanates from within our own fallen nature. In our text this morning, James kind of gives us the psychology behind what causes Christians to function according to the earthly wisdom rather than the wisdom that comes from above. In verse 1 he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now notice the way he follows that up. He says that it's your, that your passions are at war within you, so he puts it this way, because you are driven by your passions and basically by passions, what he means is our fallen and corrupt affections, our fallen sense of self and worth and pleasure. And so there 
therefore he says you desire and because you can't get it here's what happens you murder okay and then he says and, and, and or you, you quarrel he says you desire to have but you but you don't have it so you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain so there you go you, you, so in other words being driven by corrupt passions causes us to function according to a wisdom that corresponds to our passions rather than what corresponds to our position in Christ now James assessment of what causes even Christians to walk according to the wisdom that is from the earth or from our fallen nature is it's in his description here in verse 1 corresponds with verses 1 and 2 it corresponds to something that Thomas Cranmer the great uh, English uh, theologian and founder one of the founders or actually one of the chief editors of the common of the book of common prayer uh, Thomas Cranmer says this he says what the heart loves the will chooses and the mind justifies so what the heart loves the will chooses and the mind justifies so therefore no matter what it is we will find the way to it because the heart wants it and obviously if the heart is fallen and we are following or we are following fallen and corrupt passions then we are going to be going opposite from what God's word intends and holding in mind that it's not that we don't have a heart and it's not that within our heart we are not able of some good but in terms of the ultimate good that is required by God our affections are fallen so again what James says what causes the quarrels and what causes the fights among you what makes you what, what, what puts you at odds with your brothers and sisters is a passion whatever that passion might be the passion to be right the passion to be known whatever it might be you are willing to go to that extent that James calls you a murderer in order to achieve it yeah what I want to do uh, because I would argue that in this section of his writing in this, this section of the book what James does he's already sort of targeted the issues at hand and what he wants Christians to do is to walk in a manner that reflects the faith that they embrace that they would conform their thoughts and words to God's word because they have been grafted into the body of Christ and so he wants as we saw in chapter 1 that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only and so he has challenged some very significant problems within the church and in this section James is at his most pastoral in fact I would argue that James in this section epitomizes the pastoral duty of, of, of ministry of law and gospel among the people of God so what I want to do this morning and I know in other, in other portions or other times that I preach from this fourth chapter we've done a deep dive into various sections especially in verses 1 through 6 and then in other portions but what I want to do is look at verses 1 through 10 through the lens of a minister of the gospel who is trying to bring both together law and gospel for the edification of God's people and the glory of the God that saves them so I'm going to show you how James uses both law and gospel and how it should be used even amongst us as we deal with these very real issues so here's the first thing in the first place what James does is he confronts their behavior with the language and logic of God's holy law 
he confronts their, their behavior with both the language and the logic of God's holy law. And one of the reasons for that is because the purpose of the law is to confront the people of God or to confront God's people. Now notice what he says here. He calls them in the section, he calls their disputes, what they would call just, you know, maybe a blow up and I just had a little run in. James doesn't use the language of the culture. He uses the language of God's law. And so he calls their, their disputes wars that leads to murder. And they said, wait a minute. Now, no, we didn't, nobody got killed. And James, what James is doing is, is, is laser beaming God's law on the behavior of God's people. That you don't see it as murder, but God's law does. So what James does here is really what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. That he is expounding God's law to the point that he is saying, no, you didn't just have a heated meeting. What you had was a war. He doesn't just call them murderers, but he calls them murderers. He, he accuses them in verse 2 of being covetous. And then in verse 4, he calls them an adulterous people. I'm here to argue that he, when he calls them adulterous, he's not speaking of sexual immorality that was rampant in the church. That's not what he's addressing here. If that were the case, it would have been a different order of instruction as we get with Paul in 1 Corinthians when that was an issue. But he is using adultery in the same way that the Old Testament prophets did when they talked about the idolatry of God's people. In fact, in Ezekiel, he says, My people play the harlot under every green tree. He says, they're not, even, they're not even good harlots, because at least the prostitutes get paid. And so he's basically equating a mindset, sort of a contemporary idolatry, as being equivalent to adultery. And he's saying that, and just think about it for a moment, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to justify our actions when we don't use the language of the law. It's easy for us, I, I don't know where we get the idea, well, it's a white lie. God's law doesn't say, doesn't direct our lives in terms of white, red, black, green, whatever. He just says don't lie. And there's no room for the white lie. It says, Paul says in Romans that we would see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that's what happens when God's law is opened up. James is magnifying the intent and the spirit of God's holy law. And therefore he confronts their behavior that for whatever reason this behavior has become acceptable if not normative. Think about that for a moment. How many dysfunctions have we allowed to become normative? I was sharing a number of years ago with uh, someone that asked me, well, in your years of ministry, what's one of the most difficult parts of your job? And I said, business meetings. I said, because people all of a sudden feel that they can, they can be as unholy and as unloving and as ungracious as they want to be in the name of business. And what James is doing is swooping down into our business meetings. And he says, no, what you call normative, God calls warfare. What you call just gossiping and I'm just being blunt, I'm just telling the truth. What you call it, you, you call it just, just speaking the truth, God calls it gossip. God calls it slander. God calls it murder. 
You think that you just want power. No, here's what you are. And James uses the language of the law and the logic of the law to confront the behavior of these people. Notice some of the things that he's already addressed within this congregation. That when a rich person comes in, they, they bend over backwards to concede to him. And when someone, even within their own fellowship, comes in and they are not as well dressed, then somehow we have found it justifiable to give them second class treatment. In chapter 3 he says that you you find it okay to, to, to bless God and praise God with your tongue and then come right back and curse your brother. All of these things he now confronts in this section with the language and the logic of the law. Because the law is intended to confront. And it confronts by showing you that what is, what you think is okay, God calls sin. Don't be confused by the, the, the thought patterns of the world. God calls it sin. Now, I know we've gotten used to a culture of lies and making excuse for lies and liars. God calls it sin. I know we've gotten used to talking about people that we don't know. But God calls it sin. And so James uses the language of the law to confront the behaviors of the people. Here's the second thing. As God's people, we do need to be confronted with the full weight of God's law so that we could be brought under conviction that our words, that our actions, and that our thoughts are in conformity to the patterns of the world rather than the pattern of God's holy law. So we need to be confronted so that we can be convicted that we're thinking like the world, that we're speaking like the world rather than the people of God. In other words, we need to be confronted with our sins so that we can see our sins as being abnormal from the holiness of God. Because we hear too much around us that confirm us. This is basically what Paul is, is or what James is getting at in verse 4. In verse 4 he says, do you not know that, or he says, are you adulterous people? Do you not know that the friendship, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The aim here that James has is to bring them in under conviction. In other words, this should be an insult. This should be, far be it from me, Lord, I was acting like that. Now contrast what James says in verse 4 with what Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2. James says you're acting like the world. You want to be friends with the world. You're trying to be, this is like junior high school all over again. You're trying to be cool. You're trying to be hip. You're trying to show that you're with it. And therefore you'd rather be a friend of the world than a friend of God. Look at the way James puts it, or Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is acceptable and the perfect uh, and what is acceptable and perfect the law of God confronts our sins so that we can feel conviction that we have become conformable 
more comfortable, I should say, with the thought patterns of the world. We are supposed to be disturbed. We are supposed to be stirred up. We are supposed to be convicted. Isn't that what Nathan does with David? David has committed adultery with, with one of his soldiers' wives and, and he has taken the man out and, and put him in a plate because the woman had gotten, Bathsheba had gotten pregnant and David put, you know, he's trying to, to make sure that all blame was away from him, no DNS, uh, DNA tests and paternity tests. So he says, okay, we'll just let him be with his wife and then everybody will, say, will think that that's the father because he had been in war and when, when, when the man refuses to sleep with his wife in honor of, of the soldier being a soldier for the king, then David has him put in the front line so he could be killed. He was a man of God, a man after God's own heart. And the Lord sent Nathan to him. And Nathan comes to him and he tells him a story. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm confused over a matter. He says, let me tell you about something that happened. There was a rich man who had many little, many lamb, many sheep. And a friend came by to visit him. And there was another man who only had one little ewe sheep. One little ewe lamb. Just that's it. And when the rich man's visitor came by and he wanted to prepare a meal, instead of going into his vast fold, he went to the one, the poor man who only had the one ewe lamb. And you know what he did? He took it. And that ewe lamb was like a household pet. So it was all on Instagram and everything. And it was all over the place. We had TikTok videos of this ewe lamb. And this rich man came and snatched him away. And killed him. David was outraged. He says, that scoundrel ought to be killed. And then Nathan simply said, my Lord, you're that man. Brothers and sisters, we have to see ourselves against the law of God so that that which enrages us about others, we would see it in us and be brought under conviction. Someone asked G.K. Chesterton once, what is the worst thing that's in the world today? And he said, me. Brothers and sisters, we need to be confronted with the law so that we can be convicted in our inner selves and words and thoughts and deeds that we know are inconsistent with the Holy Word of God. But here's the third thing. Not only does God's law, and James does it here, uses it to confront the, the, the sins of his listeners or his readers, but the purpose of the confrontation is to bring about conviction. And so he brings, he, he aims at conviction by telling them they're murderers and that they are covetous and they are adulterers, adulterers and they are trying to be friends with the world. And then he throws in that line that whoever wants to be a friend with the world makes himself. Notice that language there. Makes himself. In other words, you act like an enemy of God so that they would be convicted. But here's the third thing. The conviction of the law is intended to produce contrition in the in the blood-bought 
spirit dwelt children of God. God convicts us in order to bring us under a sense of contrition. And what contrition means is a deep sense of remorse. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, be wretched and mourn. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And let your joy be turned to gloom. See, that was the problem that Paul had with the church at Corinth. They knew of this immorality that was taking place, but they they weren't saddened by it. They were good with it. The reason that God confront our sins is to bring us under the conviction that we are the sinner. And He doesn't just leave us there. He wants us to wallow in it and be sad about it. That we would not be puffed up. But that we would be broken down. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises in the coming of the Messiah. He says, and I will give you, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now the result of him putting a new spirit in us is now articulated in verse 31 of Ezekiel 36 where he says this, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and for your abominations. I think James is seeking or provoking his readers to contrition in at least three different things that he references here. And his aim is to get them to mourn instead of being joyful so that when they slander a brother's character, they don't get on the phone and talk about it. Rather, they would get on their knees and be convicted by it. Three things. One, he is trying to provoke them to contrition by critiquing their prayer life. In verse 3, he says that, what, two things that he says about prayer. Number one, you don't ask for what you should. Remember in chapter 1, he says, if any man lacks wisdom, then let him ask of God. And he says, but you don't ask. In other words, you don't ask for that which strengthens you and equips you to be what you're supposed to be. So he says, on the one hand, you don't ask, but then he says, but when you do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because God knows that you will only use it on your passion. And so in verse 3, his whole point there is that their prayer, in fact, when it says when you pray amiss, the word that's translated amiss is diseased. How many of us have friends, family, loved ones that would call us up and whatever they need, we'd be willing to give it to them? then we know that they have an addiction problem. And what we would have gone out of our way to provide for them if we knew they were okay, but the fact that we know that they are diseased, we wouldn't even give them five dollars. Haven't we experienced that? And why wouldn't we give it to them? Now, if they, if they were not diseased, we'd give them a thousand and borrow a thousand to give them. But because they are diseased, we wouldn't give them a nickel. But you know why? Because we know they are diseased. And we know that whatever we give them, 
is only going to be spent to further their destruction. James is trying to make them contrite. And one of the ways that he points or that he aims towards their contrition is to inform them that their prayer lives are diseased. A second thing that he does to, to point them towards contrition so that they would be, they would be broken by, their, by what the law has revealed is in verse 4 by him saying that their worldliness puts them at enmity with God. Think about that for a moment. And that's, what, that's exactly what he does in verse 4. He says, listen, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And, and, and here's what they, they know that God has enmity. They know that and they know the world is okay. They haven't put them together. And so then he goes on to say, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James wants is for his hearers who claim faith in God's grace in the person of his Son. He wants, he wants those that while they were enemies... Christ died for them so that they could become sons and daughters. He wants them to hear, hear with their ears that they are nothing more, according to their actions, they are acting like enemies instead of children. So that at some point, they would say, oh no, that's, that's not good and that's not right. But thirdly, James is trying to produce contrition within them by suggesting in verse 5 that they're, they're, they're being locked in this mode of thought and behavior is essentially grieving the Holy Spirit. It's an unusual phrase the way he expresses it here. In verse 5 he says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in, in us? In other words, the way I think it was B.B. Warfield that puts it this way, that the imagery here is that of a man whose wife has affections for another and he looks at her and desires that she would look at him the way she looks at her lover. Paul simply says in Ephesians, do not grieve the spirit. And how do we grieve the spirit? By making little of what he's made much of which is the person and work of Christ. By, by negating what he has connected us to, which is the love and grace that is in Christ. So James has confronted God's people with the language and the logic of God's holy law to spotlight their sin so that they would see what has become normative is nothing more than rebellion against the law of God. Having confronted their sin, he intends to bring them under conviction that they are the one. It's not them. The problem is not out there. The problem, he wants them to say, Lord, it is I. I think one of the most honest moments in the lives of the apostles during the earthly ministry of Jesus was the night in which he was arrested. And at the Lord's table as he's serving them, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And, and, and probably the most honest moment in all of their collective lives, you know what they said? They turned to each other and they said, is it I? 
Israel. Israel will be easy, and especially for us. One of us, one of you is going to betray me. What is the, the, the Adam instinct? It's probably him. I, I knew a little something about him. But when God convicts, the question is not them. It becomes clearly us. And the reason he convicts is so that God's people could become contrite, remorseful. I said before that, you know, I only had one child, but, um, and so we only had to go through potty training once. But you know when you're making progress in potty training? When the child is uncomfortable in their soiled diaper. Now you know you have work to do when you walk in the room and the soiled diaper greets you all over the place. And the child is sitting there like nothing is wrong. <laughs> in fact, they're smiling and say, oh boy, we, we still have work to do. But when they become uncomfortable, God brings to bear on the lives of his people that he's conforming to his image. He brings to bear on them the weightiness and the gravity of their sins so they can be uncomfortable with it. And James has done it, as we've said, in three ways by pointing out their, their prayer life as being soiled as pointing out the fact that they are too comfortable being friends with the enemy. And then by pointing out the fact that they are comfortable at grieving the Spirit. Well, that brings us to a fourth thing. Law-induced contrition on the part of God's people ought to bring about confession. In other words, when, I'm talking about God's people. When God's people have been confronted with their sins and are convicted that they are the sinner and are made contrite by that, then they cry out and confess. And what is it that they confess? That they are unworthy. They cry out that they are guilty. In other words, James wants his readers to agree with his assessment that they are trying to be friends with the world. He wants them to agree with his assessment that they are covetous and they are murderers. And having been brought into agreement with it, he wants them, as we see in verse 7, to now submit. He says, submit yourselves to, the, to, to God and resist. You can't do that unless you confess that you have failed to, to submit. In order to, for, for what he says in verse 7, in order to act on that, one must be willing and able, free of court, to be able to say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have, I have been in league with the one, with, with the evil one. I have not allowed your word to shape my words. I've listened to the serpent. And I have failed you. And I have stood with your enemy. That's one of the things that, that confuses me, and I, I just want to mention this in passing when, you know, I try to stay away from political things, but one of the things that's confused me is all of the celebration of the Confederate flag that was raised in rebellion against the nation. And they lost. We're supposed to celebrate the flag of the enemy? 
he rose up. And that's what God is, that's what James is saying. You're walking with the enemy. You don't see that? And when they see that, here's part of the confession. When we come before God and we confess ourselves as sinners, we are confessing that we have rebelled willingly against your law. And we have delighted in being on the side of the enemy that was defeated by your son on the cross. The whole point of confrontation is to bring conviction. And the purpose of conviction is to bring contrition. And contrition brings forth the confession that I am the chief of sinners. Tells them to submit to the Lord and resist the devil. And notice what he says. What will the devil do? He'll flee. And you know why? Because he knows you have been flying his flag illegitimately. And he knows that he has no claim on you. Because he knows, even if you don't, that he's defeated. Now with these four uses of the law, now comes the gospel. And it comes with a single statement to people who, the people of God, who have been, who have been brought, who, whose sins have been confronted, who have been convicted that they are the sinners, who have been made contrite, and who have confessed. Then James gives the word of consolation. He says in verse 6, But he gives more grace. And that's it. He gives more grace. You know why? Because for two reasons. This is an important reminder. Because once you have been confronted and convicted and, and once you have been made contrite and you've confessed, now the tendency is to try to offer a peace offering. Now you want to start giving stuff up and making dedications and promises. But here's what James says. No, no. You, you came empty-handed to the cross. And you are renewed and you receive that renewal empty-handed. He gives more grace. And you know it's hard for us to receive favors. It was hard enough. It's hard enough for us to receive saving grace because that means all the work is done. And we want to do something. So now that we have messed up all along the way, once we have messed up, now we really feel the need to do something. And so what James says, no, he gives more grace. And here's what he admonishes. Humble yourselves. Draw near to God. And what you'll see is that he's not saying that you now that you messed up, stand in the corner over there for five minutes. No, what he does, as we sang this morning, his grace is greater than all of our sins. And so he confronts us to convict us. And we are convicted so that we would acknowledge what we are. 
and here's what we are made mindful of. Yes, we've acted like enemies. But brothers and sisters, understand this. As Paul says in Romans 5, God sent his son while we were enemies. And it reminds us of that grace when we continue to act like enemies. He gives more grace. He says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Is that a work for us to do? No, that's a grace for us to receive. That we have been purified by our great high priest. And here's what, I know we live in a canceled culture that if you mess up, you just messed up. I was sharing with a friend a couple weeks ago when we were working through James 3. And he was talking about giving an example of, of a faith that demonstrates itself in works. And then he mentions Rahab. And here's what he says, Rahab the prostitute. And I mentioned to my friend, I said, you know, I was, that, that struck me. I, I've seen it, I read over it a thousand and one times, and I, I get it. I said, but for whatever reason, it caught me off guard. It's like, you know, Rahab is like, can I get over it? Because <laughs> if we don't call David the adulterer, so why do we have to still deal with it? Then it struck me. That even though she was, it didn't hinder God's grace. And she hasn't been canceled because of what she did or what she was. Here's what James is telling those now that they have, because you know, the more we are convicted, the more guilt weighs on us. The more unworthy we feel, the more we feel beat down and are willing to do so much more in order to prove ourselves. I, I messed up more than so I'll do this. And look at the prodigal son. I messed up. Just hire me. You don't have to treat me as a son. Just hire me. What we discover is when we're broken down by God's law, when we cry out because of the conviction that comes from God's law, the only balm that can heal our souls is God's grace. He gives more grace. And you know what he does? When you've been brought low, he reminds you of your exalted status that is in his son. That's why when he says, the humble he will exalt, doesn't mean he's going to give you more than what he's already given his son. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what happens when we stray, we forget that we can't get more or higher than what we already have in Christ. He gives more grace by exalting us in His Son. John says, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But here's what we do know. That as He is, we shall be also. And why do we know that? Because as He is right now, that's how the Father sees us. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. And that is our consolation. And that is our comfort. And that is our incentive. To turn from that which is displeasing. 
and seek to walk as children of light. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you. We thank you for loving us enough that when we were yet sinners, you sent your Son. And then when we strayed from your path, you still sent your Son. Thank you for calling us back to the fold. And thank you for filling our hearts with grace. We've lived like enemies. We have been comfortable and complacent in mimicking the thought patterns of the world that is condemned. We've made light the riches of your grace. We pray, O oh God, that you would deepen our affections and our appetites for what you have purchased by the blood of your Son and what your Holy Spirit illumines within us so that we are satisfied and that there is nothing that could be offered us greater than what you freely given. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.